Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church again, especially if you're visiting with us today. Uh, my name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here, and we're glad to be um, together as we pick up in our series, The Songs of Jesus, a series in which we're plugging in the playlist of the Psalms of the songs that both shape Jesus' life and that Jesus came to satisfy. A playlist that we found is all about God's promised king and how the fulfillment of that promise particularly rested not on David, the one the the promise was made to, but in God, the one that promise was made by I mentioned last week that the Psalms are broken up into five volumes, five books, and this is what book one was all about. And the opening of book two in Psalms 42 and 43, what we looked at last week, the opening of book two invited God's people to to put as much faith in God as David did. But what if the evils that threaten David and that threaten the promise made to David prove not just to be evils outside of David, as we've seen so far, but turn out to be evils within? Well, in Psalm 51, what we're turning to today David is going to personally lead us as he's reintroduced in this second book. He's going to personally lead us after the greatest moral failure of his life to even then put our faith in God. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to Psalm 51. We're going to begin by reading it. You can follow along as I do. Again, In Psalm 51, verses 1 to 19, this is God's word. It says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Purge me. With hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a difficult matter to admit that the evil within us could in fact rival the evil without And yet it is a fact that we're faced with almost every moment of our lives. So selfish and insecure, so prideful and prejudiced. So lazy, so greedy, so gluttonous. We're envious of those around us. We're idolaters at every turn. Serving anything and everything except you because we ultimately only want to serve ourselves. And yet you have made a way back to yourself and have invited us to even in these moments at our worst put our faith in you and your faithful son. And as we look at this passage today, I pray that you that you would well that up in us. That we would do just that, put our faith in you and your faithful Son in whose name we pray. Amen. We have met the enemy and the enemy is us. Do you know who popularized that phrase? It was actually popularized on a, a, the caption of a 1970s poster created, of all things, for Earth Day. The first Earth Day, in fact, after the, the Santa Barbara oil blowout of 69. And, and the point was that when it comes to our planet, we have met the enemy, and the enemy, apparently, is us. 
But many people don't know that the, the cartoonist responsible for that poster, a, a man by the name of Walt Kelly, had originally used that line nearly 20 years before to say something much more profound. That, that while we may be an enemy to our planet, we're even more a potential enemy to each other. He wrote this in the foreword to a collection of his comic strips saying this, traces of nobility, gentleness, and courage persist in all people, but so too do those characteristics which are ugly. We must resolve then that on this very ground, which with small flags waving and tiny blasts on tiny trumpets, we shall meet the enemy, even if the enemy, it turns out, is us. And yet while Kelly used this as a justification for his career as a political commentator, a political pundit, his words, in fact, speak of something more profound still. That we not only have the potential to be an enemy to our planet or an enemy to each other, but are, in fact, an enemy, perhaps the worst enemy to ourselves. That like with David, the greatest threat to, to my happiness and my joy and my experiencing, the promises extended to me as part of God's people, that my greatest enemy is not an evil outside, but an evil within. Which means that more than political commentary or even just making my life's mission, pointing out where everyone else has a problem, my life and your life as well ought to be marked, God willing, as a response to God's word, just like David's was, that it will God willing be marked rather by personal confession. That's what we're talking about today. Confession. Our response to God's invitation and God's plan and God's way back to himself. As we look, along with David, at how we ought to confess to God with humility, with hunger, and with hope. That our confessions before God, our ongoing confessions before God, following this king, ought to be marked again with humility, with hunger, and with hope. First, that, that we ought to confess with humility. Which is where David starts in verse 1 and in this first section of this psalm. Again, after Nathan the prophet comes with God's word and proclaims God's judgment, 
David, David had taken another man's wife, if you don't know the story, used his political power to try to cover it up, and ultimately had that other man, one of his most loyal servants, had that other man knocked off, killed, murdered. But this is David's response when he finally falls under the conviction of God's word. He confesses first with humility. And I want you just to notice how much in this opening section of this psalm, how much David has given up on himself. Look at verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Which is David admitting that that he's got nothing on his own. He, He can't do anything on his own and is completely dependent on God. He's not saying, I'm going to make this right, or, or, or I'm, going to, I'm going to go have another go at it, or, or maybe if I work hard enough, I can work this out and work to balance out the scales. He's saying, what's done is done, and all the good was just washed away by, and down the drain by the bad that I now cannot undo. One thing to tip the scales, and all else matters not. Doesn't take much to have a reason to throw someone in jail. Doesn't matter what life was like before. One thing. And David can do nothing. I can't undo it. I've ruined it. Which means David is desperately dependent on God. Look at the humility and on what only God can do. And because he doesn't deserve it and hasn't earned it and doesn't in any way, shape, or form have a right to it, that all he can do is confess his need for it. For God to extend his mercy and to exercise his steadfast love which is what David is saying again in verse 2. Just continuing on. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. But more than the request to to blot out and, and wash and cleanse, the emphasis here in the first section of this psalm is on how David describes what he's done wrong. Calling them my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, owning it outright to the end. And you can read this in one of two ways. As if he's mincing words and actually distinguishing between different types of offenses toward God and then asking very particularly that God would do one thing with this type of offense and another with another type of offense. And we have that in other places in Scripture. You can can look at this that way. Or probably, I think, more likely... That he's saying, I don't care what you call it, I've done it all. And I don't care how you describe it, the point is, again, that God needs to do what only God can. Because with one fell swoop, I, I broke this as bad as it can be broken. 
David will be described as a man who, who lived after God's heart in all things except this one thing. But any way you slice it, whatever words you want to use, David will admit, I Pinterest failed this beyond my ability to bring anything good out of it. This is the photo you're going to see. This is the one that's going to turn into the meme. Just like David. Which is something, right, if this is what he's doing. If he's not here mincing words and trying to make very particular distinctions and is just owning it all. Because our gut reaction when we get caught is to, is to do the opposite, right? That's when we want to mince words. That's when we, when we want to lawyer up or play the system. But not David. Because David realized under the conviction of God's word that you can't do that with God. There's nowhere to run, right? Because God knows who stole the cookie. God knows who broke the cookie jar. God knows who tried to blame it on somebody else and then set a match to the house so that nobody could come back and dust for fingerprints. God knows. Which means our only hope and our great need is not hiding it with words, but in humility, looking for God in his mercy to deal with it only like God can. There's nowhere to run because God knows. David says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions too. My sin is ever before me. I know it and live with it too, even more so in a personal, deep way. And it haunts me and I, can do, I can't do anything about it, he says. My sin haunts me. And when you boil it down, verse 4, it's against who? It's against God and God only whom I've sinned, who we've sinned and done what is evil in his sight. Not that we haven't sinned against others or, 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 or hurt others or, or wrapped others up in our sin and the consequences of our sin. But David's saying the only standard that matters is the one standard in heaven that I broke outright. So we can't forgive ourselves or, or look for forgiveness in others before first looking for forgiveness in God. We can't consider the matter settled. And we ought to go first where it needs to be settled most. Not because we haven't, like David, wronged others, but because God is the one who sets the standard. So God is the one with whom we must ultimately find forgiveness, if we're going to find it at all. 
Because as David says, he's justified in his words, right? And blameless in his judgment. And we deserve, like David, everything we've got coming for everything we've done wrong. And yet look a little closer. Because it's not just about what we do on the outside. We've got something wrong on the inside. Look at what David says. This isn't a a surface level thing that we can take care of with a, a spray of tan. As if changing the appearance would do anything. This is something that's in our blood. That's what David is saying in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's his way of saying that I was wayward from the womb. That before I even showed up as a cuddly little bundle of fun, all the muck and all the murder was already woven into my heart. Then he says, beyond that, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And what he's talking about here, I think, the best explanation for what he's talking about here is the inward being of his mother, where we all start, that the standard's no different from the very beginning, that even then there is an expectation for truth and truthfulness and living beneath the truth. And you teach me, or taught me, he says, wisdom in the secret heart. That even then, David, from the start, knew which way he was supposed to go. He knew he wasn't God, instinctually. That we do that as creatures. We know that we didn't create this world, and instinctually know we're supposed to go after a creator. Hide that as we may. But that means that David is saying that that there isn't any room to plead insanity. There isn't any room to to plead ignorance or, or that we somehow were unaware or that we somehow can strike a deal because of some loophole in the system. The prosecution has this case buttoned up and can prosecute to the full extent of the law. And we are all condemned from birth, David is saying, as much as we're condemned for what we do. Which is why we, like David, ought to confess first with humility, recognizing our great need for God and for God's grace and for God to do what only God can because God's the judge and jury and prosecution and our only hope is if somehow he ends up on our side too and ends up as our defense. It's our only hope of God working it out. You can't explain him away that does you nothing, no good whatsoever. Your only hope, our only hope is if in humility he ends up as our defense. Which should naturally lead us to confess second with a hunger. 
and to put on the table and lay out before God what we're asking. This is what David does next. It's where he, it, it leads David, re- reiterating in verse 7 what he said to begin with, saying here, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was the, the branch that um, a priest would use to spread the blood of a sacrifice over the people of Israel, over God's people. But look here. David's not asking for a priest. David's saying to God, you do it. You do it. Because no priest can deal with what I've done, right? But if you do it, then I'll be clean. Then I'll be whiter than snow. This is what he longs for. To not sit there and have to scrape the scales off himself or, or have someone else try to do it for him. But to have the lion show up and do what only the lion can. To do it though it's going to hurt more than anybody else doing it. But it's because he's the only one who does it right. And yet notice what, what David wants more than, than to just be cleansed. This is super important. Because he, ju- he doesn't just want to be cleansed for being clean, for the sake of being clean. Look at where he goes. See, we can slip into that sometimes like Macbeth did. Do you remember the story? Like Macbeth, who, who wants to, to wash the blood stains from his hands with all the, the waters of great Neptune's sea. Why? Just to clear his conscience. Just to save him from insanity. Just so he can sleep soundly. But that's not what David was after. It shouldn't be what we're after either. Look, for David, being cleansed is just one step toward joy. That's what he names and says in verse 8, then comes back to in verse 12. He wants joy. He says, let me hear joy. And then in verse 12, he asks God to restore to me the joy of my salvation. This isn't just about being cleaned. Being cleansed. This is about having joy. But it's one more step beyond that. Cleansing leads to joy. Forgiveness leads to joy. But notice, deeper still, David longs for God himself. Which is what true joy is all about. And why as a And aside, if you're going after joy in any other way, in anything other than God, trying to conjure it up even apart from God, you're never actually going to get it. And it's precisely why David, after asking for joy, asked that God would in grace, see it, hide his face from David's sins. See that in verse 9? He says, hide your face so that, he'll circle back again in verse 11, so that on the other side of that, he can beg God not to cast him from God's face. Same word 
God's presence it's translated sometimes, that he will not be cast away from God's face. Hide my sins from your face so that I don't have to be hidden from it. Or put a little differently, that God wouldn't take away from David his spirit. Because you remember Saul, right? You remember the stories? The king who came before David. That that's exactly what God did to him. When Saul disobeyed and, and went his own way, that, that, that God took his spirit, his presence, his face from Saul. But David begs, don't do it to me. Don't do it to me because this is all that matters. It's the only thing that matters because this is what being clean is all about and this is what joy is all about because that's where we began in the garden. That's where we were made to be. With God, before God, in front of God's face, with God's spirit. Just give me back what matters most. Confessing not just with humility that he can't do it himself, but confessing with a hunger that he wants back the one thing that matters most. Which is why he asked to be clean in the first place. And why that's the request in the middle of all that, right in the center of all this, in verse 10. If you're going to memorize one verse of this passage, this is the verse to memorize. Because this is the heart of the request. This is the confession. This is what he wants most. His heart revealed that God would create in him a clean heart and renew a right spirit within him. And don't just dismiss the significance of that. The significance of these words because David's asking that God would turn back the sands of time and create him again. That's where these words come together in Scripture, always hearkening back to the first time they appeared together when the Spirit of God was hovering over the chaos of our world, bringing order out of it because in that God was creating a world of his own. A world to be his own. And David says, do it again. Do it again. Do it only you can because you're the one who did it first. You're the one who did it best. And you're my only hope of ever having back what I now lost because of what I've done going after what I wanted for myself. Create in me Recreate in me a clean heart and this time renew, put the Spirit in me that I cannot live without. To confess with humility, to confess with hunger, and to finally confess with hope. And here I just want to point out in the last section of this 
psalm. I just want to point out how much David is banking on God answering this prayer. Look at that little word, then. What expectancy, right? Then. Then, not if, then. When you do it, then. Then I will what? I will teach transgressors your ways. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God. And my tongue then will sing aloud. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will do it. It will declare your praise. Why? For while you do not delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, and you will not be pleased with them, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Echoing back again to the king who preceded him who went his own way too, but never came back. To whom Samuel said, right? To whom Samuel said, Saul, it is not in offerings and sacrifices in which I delight. But David says the key is not my doing for you what I want, when I want, how I want it, but putting myself at your mercy so you get to be the hero. Confessing with hope. God's going to build up Zion and build up Jerusalem and make again what was once lost. Super interesting, I think, though, that this level of hope trumps even the potential humiliation that comes with this guy's dirty laundry hanging out there for 2,500 years. It's all public, right? David's writing this to the choir master. Go tell them. They already know that I am not who they need. But I can do one thing. I can lead them in turning to the one that we do need. Then I will teach transgressors. Then I will open my mouth. My tongue will sing. My mouth will declare from the lowest point of my life. And yet you will be set high. Confessing with humility, with hunger, and with hope. Stories told of um, a man some of you will know, a literary critic by the name of G.K. Chesterton, and a, uh, an, a newspaper put out a competition with this question, this essay question to be answered, what's wrong with the world? You know the story? And many wrote in, 
Reputedly, many wrote in and to answer this question with what they thought was, was most wrong, somewhat wrong, could be wrong with the world. But G.K. Chesterton wrote in a very simple reply. Dear editor, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. In this psalm, in this psalm, David leads us to be okay with that answer. Leads us as the king of God's people, in whom God's people put their hope, but points beyond himself, saying, I'm not the one you needed. We're still waiting for another. But in following me and my confession with humility, with hunger, with hope, we can look forward to David's greater son. And I usually close with a few encouragements, a few challenges, but today I only want to give you one. Because some of you are sitting here with a sin that's got a grip of your life, a grip on your life so significantly that you would rather hide it and take it to the grave than know in this life what it's like to lay that publicly even before the Savior's feet. That rather than follow David as king and put your hope in one greater than he, you would rather hide it. You would rather let it rot. You would rather let it eat away at the insides. And I want to encourage you today that that's not the way you were meant to live. That you're living on a false pretense of everybody else being more perfect than you. And it's just not true. And that if David can do it, we can follow in his footsteps. Not that everything is supposed to be taken off the cross and, and spread aloud spread publicly around. But we ought to be able to say to one another where we're struggling most and where we've most been helped by Jesus. And I want to invite you after this, if you are struggling with that, even as, even as the worship team closes us out and leads us um, in a song based on this psalm, I want to invite you to then and thereafter to come. And if you need an ear and don't have an ear, I can be an ear. We have elders who can be ears. We have elders' wives who would be more than willing to be ears to come and spill what is rotting inside. To come and do that where, where Satan has a grip on you so much that you have no one right now whether that's 
pornography, whether that's a, a, another form of a sexual addiction, an adulterous relationship that is either brewing or fully brewn, whether it is murder in your heart or maybe more, if you've lifted a hand or broken a relationship or done something to that effect and it is eating you, that is not where you're supposed to live. And I'd invite you, even as the worship team comes forward, even as we close today, come, find an ear, find someone. We are a family And there is no one perfect here, but we serve one who can do much with our imperfections. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know the struggle. I know the struggle of keeping lips tight, of keeping hearts hidden. And I pray that today you would even unlock us. I pray today that we would encourage each other to confess loudly and boldly with humility and hunger and hope because of what Jesus has done. I pray you would do it. I pray you'd teach us to follow David's ways. I pray you would do it in us to make us stronger and a stronger testimony for Jesus. In his name we pray. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.